Welcome to the Tennis Addict Podcast, the podcast for tennis fans by tennis fans. Listen as the hosts break down the latest news and tournament results from around the tennis world. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced early each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Here are your hosts, Mike, Eric, and Michael. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Attic Podcast, the tennis podcast by tennis fans for tennis fans. I'm Michael, and with me today are my co-host, Michael and Eric. Hey, everybody. Hello. All right, so uh, this is going to be about Margaret Court, uh, Australian legend, uh, the Regal Queen. I'm going to hand this over to Eric. Eric's going to take the reins on this episode. So, Eric, take it away. All right. So, this is uh, the second episode of our ATP Player Profile series. Uh, We chose to do it on Margaret Court just because you're going to be getting this uh, probably before, a little bit around the Australian Open. So, I kind of wanted to do, um, you know, Legends of each Grand Slam kind of for the first time uh, that we go through each. And then after that, we're going to pick people in between, so on and so forth. So, uh, I'm going to start off, uh, you know, about Margaret Court when she grew up. Uh, so we're going to get into this. Uh, she's actually born Margaret Smith. Uh, she was born in Albury, uh, New South Wales, uh, to Lawrence and Catherine Smith. She was the youngest of four children. It was a working class family. Uh, unlike Rod Laver, uh, who seemed destined to become a tennis player because his parents and all his siblings were playing, uh, neither Smith's parents nor siblings, uh, Kevin, Vincent, and June, had any interest in tennis. Uh, the only thing that seemed to suggest the dimmest possibility of her future in tennis was the fact that the family lived across from the Border Tennis Association, which was a tennis club uh, that would become her haven as a child and a teenager. So I think that was like a stroke of luck. Yeah, it was. Uh, that, that what got her, you know, if she was probably born 10 miles south somewhere else, it might not have been a thing. So uh, at eight years uh, old or so, uh, she used to sneak into the club and practice on the courts with an old wooden racket a neighbor, uh, neighbor gave her. Uh, sometimes children in the neighborhood would go in and play with her uh, until they got kicked out. It continued for a couple of years until Wally Rudder, uh, who was the club owner or janitor, some say, uh, gave her membership in lessons. Eventually, she worked there uh, to earn her court time in lessons. So even at an early age, the talent that court had was pretty obvious. She could hit the ball harder than any other girl and won numerous titles in her age group. Um, and she won some 60 titles by the age of 15, which was a lot. Uh, however, tennis was not the only sport she excelled at. Uh, she played basketball. Cricket was popular. Baseball and soccer with other boys. because She was one of the only girls that could compete and at times exceed their level. So I told you something about her fitness even as a young, young girl. Uh, she was also a star in track and was training for the Olympic team before giving it up to focus on tennis. So, you know, we could have been potentially not talking about Margaret Court, the best tennis player to ever live, the best track star that ever lived type of deal. Um, so lucky for us, she turned to focus on the tennis. Definitely. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> uh, in her later teens, she moved to Melbourne uh, by invitation and began training uh, with several different coaches as a team, uh, possibly the first true team of coaches. There's not a lot of info, but it seems like that might be uh, the truth. And with each coach, fo- uh, each coach focusing on a specific aspect of her game, you know, from fitness to ground strokes, serve and volley, net game, so on and so forth, uh, they relied on her inherent athleticism and strength to build her physique and endurance. Um, after winning her first uh, Australian Open uh, in 1960. 
which I think it was called something different then, the Australian Championships or so. Uh, she trained harder over the course of the season after winning that title. So it was more like motivation. I think that was like that's what winning ticks. for motivation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like she won the first one. She's like, oh my god, I love this, and then that just kicked it off. Uh, after winning her second consecutive Australian Open in 1961, she turned pro and began traveling internationally to play tennis. You know, she had her ups and her downs, but eventually she adjusted. You know, being in Australia. Playing Australians, not playing on clay a lot, not playing on grass and so forth. You know, obviously you're going to adjust there. Uh, so for most of her career, Court played not only singles, but she really excelled at doubles and mixed doubles um, as well. Uh, given her length and strength, she was only uh, one of the only women of the era truly capable of excelling at mixed doubles. Therefore, she won many many doubles and mixed doubles slams throughout her career, and that began in the early 1960s. And as a, as a side note stat, since we're just talking about it, she won out of 25 um, finals that she played, she went 21-4 and four as a mixed doubles. Pretty impressive. impressive. Yeah, yeah, as a mixed doubles. Uh, and I'm going to get into some other things. But just there's a lot of stats it. that uh, I think we all yeah. found very impressive. Exactly. I mean, when you have about as many mixed double slams as you have single slams, I mean, that tells you something, you know, right there. But anyway, so her main rival um, for her career was Billie Jean King. Their rivalry uh, began at Wimbledon in the early 60s and would continue on and off the court, you know, with opposing ideologies. Um and, and for tennis fans that don't really know this, Margaret Court um, was inherently, you know, against um, LGBT and Billie Jean King. Billie Jean King herself was, uh, you know, a member of that, uh, I would say coalition, it's not the right word, but uh, she was of that persuasion. Um, really hit it back in the day. It wasn't really well known, but Margaret Court still, uh, you know, I'll talk about it a little bit later, made some ruffles in the recent years here about her views on that stuff. So anyway... Um, moving on here, if King wasn't number one in the world, you know, Court was. So it was a back and forth. It was kind of like the Roger Nadal, but of that uh, of that time frame. So after achieving nearly everything that she ever thought she wanted at the time, uh, she briefly retired from the game between 66, uh, actually 66 and 67. Uh, she had a child uh-huh. um, and she married Barry Court. So that's when she officially became Margaret Court. Um, she would return to tennis in 68 and resume her rivalry with King, uh, who by then had um, become the face of women's tennis. Her return found her still playing at the top of the game uh, after initially struggling for much of 1968. And honestly, you have a kid. It's to be expected. And mm-hmm. for someone who was such a fitness you know, fitness played such a big part in her game, I'm sure it took some time to get back up there. Right. <clears throat> Uh, so she would go on to have a dominant 1969 and in 1970 was truly, truly her breakout and most dominant season to date. Uh, she won the calendar slam in 1970. Uh, she's one of only three women to win the calendar slam. Mm-hmm. Steffi Graf in 88. She would it in 70. And then some Connolly, I can't remember the first name, but Connolly did in 58. And that was pre-open era. So seventy Jean, Jean Connolly, I believe. No, it was like uh, Martha. Start with an M. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what. It was. But anyway, no, it's Maureen Connolly. Maureen, that was it. Maureen. Yeah. That's what it was. So yeah. Maureen Connolly won in '58, and that was kind of like Don Budge. You know, it doesn't get officially recognized as much as others because pre-open era they were five rounds instead of seven, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. But anyway, uh, 1970 was a killer season for her. So anyway, we're going to skip that, and we'll get back to '70 later. So she missed parts of '71 and '72. Actually, sorry, 67, she got married, took some time off. 71, 72 is when she had her first child. Okay. Uh, I was wrong on that. I had a 
backwards. And then, uh, you know, she made a comeback to tennis. Now, post-retirement, uh, saw her win double-digit Grand Slams after her comeback until she officially retired for good. Um, but we're not going to get into the retirement yet. We're going to keep going. So while many moments can be used to highlight Court's career, uh, probably the most infamous was her battle with Bobby Riggs in 1973. Now, she did lose 6-2-6-1, um, but she did state she wasn't truly prepared for either Bobby Riggs' games nor the showbiz side of things. And despite all that, you know, she really can't explain why she lost. She said that she didn't really take it as seriously as she probably should have since it was a little more than an exhibition. Uh, so Billie Jean King would go on to down Bobby Riggs in the so-called Battle of the Sexes shortly after. Uh, it's kind of like revenge, you know, for the women. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah Margaret, right. Court, Margaret Court officially retired in 1977. She was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 79. Now, always someone whose faith was an important aspect to her, she was raised Roman Catholic before adopting the Pentecostal faith and was ordained as a minister in 1991. Um, over the years, uh, her views, most especially on the LGBT rights, has caused a sharp divide in Australia, with her most um, recent comments coming in 2016 and 17, causing for calls to take her name off of the stadium that bears her name on the grounds of the Australian Open. Uh, she added in an interview, um, this was in March of 2017, she said in an interview with the Vision Christian Radio that tennis is full of lesbians. Because even when I was playing, there was only a couple there, but those couple took young ones into parties and things. Also stating that the devil is responsible for transgender children. Um, this created an even bigger blow to her stature around the tennis community, especially when, uh, when she then stated that she wasn't against gay people, but wanted to help them overcome, uh, which only added fuel to the fire. It was not uh, probably the best thing. I mean, she has her own thoughts, but that... Uh, just in recent years, has drawn a lot of sharp criticism uh, in the community, especially when you know acceptance has been more and more you know the norm and what people should yeah, be doing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, that was uh, that's kind of the most recent thing there. We're gonna move on to the career highlights. I don't really. Want and let's to- be honest, even though that you know that did come out obviously in that time frame, it it still wasn't super widely talked about at that time. No. So no, I, I mean, mean, for a lot of people in you I'm, know the tennis community, some that weren't looking for it may not have even seen it. Well, yeah, because it, it kind of it kind of came. It was a big deal, and then it went away like that. Well, kind of. I mean, it was well, you know until she brought it up again. When you have Nastasi out there, you just she just lost, <laughs> she lost the battle of the headlines to Nastasi. That's true. That's true. He started his stupid stuff, and then he just kept going. That's she true. made a comment and kind of left it at that. That's true, and that's why I said it, it kind of came and went fairly quickly. You know. Um, yeah, it was kind of a come and go type of deal. So, uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about these things. I want to get into set two, uh, which is going to be the career highlights. Uh, there's a lot of them. So the first thing (laughs) is, um, she won 192 career singles titles and 92 of them were during the open era, which is a pretty even breakdown between, uh, the before open and after open era. Uh, she won a total of 62 grand slam events. Which is a lot. <laughs> uh, she was ranked number one at the year-end ranking six times in her career. Uh, she did it from 62 to 65 and then 69 to 70. Uh, she did complete the calendar slam like we mentioned in 1970. She won all four majors uh, all four majors in a single year. Uh, she also completed the calendar slam twice in mixed doubles, but they were not in the open era. Uh, mm. That was okay. another little tidbit. Yeah. Uh, and then when she completed the triple crown, which was winning the singles – the doubles and the mixed doubles in a Grand Slam event five times in her career. 
Wow. That's only pretty matched, impressive. It is, because it was only matched by Suzanne Longlin. Uh, and Suzanne Longlin being named for the stadium at the French Open. Exactly. So uh, she never lost in the first round of a major. And actually, I looked it up. I didn't see it, and I might be wrong. And she never lost in the final of a major two in singles. Um, I don't, no, no, no. I, don't, I think she was. I was going to say, I don't think so. Not I think much, she was oh, 17 no. and 1, I think, after yeah, 1969. No. It, was, it was mixed doubles. She never lost mixed in the doubles. final. Yeah, she oh, never okay. lost in yeah. mixed doubles final. You're right. Yeah, You're right. She, yep. she, when she lost, they were in the semi. So um, <laughs> she won at least three slam titles in a year, five times throughout her career. Uh, now, her open era uh, career singles match winning, uh, winning percentage was 91.17%. So that's. A 593 and 56 record between 68 and 77. Uh, she had about the same percentage on hard court at 91.73. She was 110, 111 and 10. And then she had an even better in, on grass. She was 93%, 293 wins to 22 losses. Um, now, one of the records she has when I said about 1970 being like the same year. year, the year, is that she won an open era record of 21 singles titles in one year. You'd be lucky if people That's play twenty one tournaments. I was gonna say twenty one is like the the, the cap know, now. Twenty one is twenty one really is what someone ranked in like the top thirty, but not the top ten does because they have to play all these tournaments just to remain there, mm-hmm. and then they lose kind of early, so they can keep entering. So that's more or less what you see. Well, we you, talk about some people playing well into the thirties to try to keep ranking. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. You look at for the men. I mean, it was you know Roger and Djokovic and, and Fed's done a couple of times like nine, ten, eleven. And that's a gargantuan year. That's half. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, 21 in 1970, I don't think it's something that's ever going to be beat. No. Um, no. W- WTA tour record of 18 singles titles in one year in 1973. Uh, she won a combined 24 grand slams. Um, now, that was 13 pre-open era and 11 post-open era. Now, we're talking about the singles here. Um, gives her 24 total. Right now, you've got Serena right behind her 23 and Steffi Graf behind her at 22. So you've got your number one, two, and three right now for women's tennis. Uh, she won seven consecutive Australian Open titles. This is from 60 to 66. And then she won 11 overall, which is still the record. Um, it's probably going to be the record for good, too. I just don't see – I don't see either man or women. I mean, Joker is about to close. Well, not in thing. Australia, but Nadal could possibly match it at the French. Yeah, yeah. Nadal could match it. But other a, than that, I don't see anybody trying to match yeah, that anywhere. Yeah, Australia, and especially not, not a female. Uh, she collected 40 combined doubles and mixed doubles Grand Slam titles. Um, so she had 21 uh, mixed doubles, and then she had 19 doubles Grand Slam titles. And uh, – she was, she's one of three women to own a career box set. So what that means is, is um, she has everything. She has uh, actually a Grand Slam. Technically, she has a Grand Slam in mixed. She has a Grand Slam in doubles. She has a Grand Slam in singles. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now between season, yeah. pre and open, yeah, we're not going to get into semantics because the mixed doubles was before. I think the doubles was too. Um, but either way, she's one of three women. And only the women have this. There's no man that has a box set uh, for a career grand Well, slam. we look in the open era. The only one to do it is is Laver. So, well, even then, he didn't do – But I'm saying even yeah. to win a singles oh, yeah, grand singles, slam. Yeah. I'm talking there's, – there's nobody that's done – even one other set other than that at yeah. this point in the open era. <laughs> That's so. true. Guys got to catch up. There's, yeah. There's <laughs> We're way behind. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you, Eric. Let me ask you a question. I, I want to ask you guys each a question here. Uh, I think we should get – it's a good point to pause, I think, in this profile to kind of talk about what we've heard so far, whether it be you know, a rundown mm-hmm. of her um, you know, 
early years growing up and I think also her you know achievements throughout her career. So I guess my question for you guys is this, what is out of all the career highlights, all the records that she has, all the things that she's done, what's the one thing here that you admire most? 70, 1970. I mean, Grand Slam and 21 titles. It's enough to win the Grand Slam in a year anyway, but to do that um, and then also to just win so many titles in a year, it's just it's a season that can't be rivaled. Uh, Steffi Graf had 88 where she had the Grand Slam and won the, the gold medal. medal. But I don't gold even think slam. the Olympics was a th- I don't know if they even played tennis in the Olympics back then. I'm not really sure. I don't think um, back then. I don't, I don't believe so. Really. And, if there, and if there was, and probably pre, pre that era and after that well, era. Well, even if they then, did, but. I imagine they were probably sexist and women didn't even play. You know, it's probably a man's thing. <laughs> that's, that's I don't very really possible. know. I'm just throwing that out there. But for me, um, 1970. I mean, because the percentages for winning are really great. But there's similar women like Everett um, and uh, uh, not Major Fernandez, but uh, she, um, Navratilova. Mm-hmm. You know, there's other women who have great percentages winning wise. But the, the, that's yeah, seventies what does it for me because behind her, I've got her at number one for women, and then I've got Steffi Graf at number two, and then I've got Serena Slam at number three. So that's for me for women the most impressive stat. Yeah, I'll let you, Michael. And, and, and I mean, for me, I mean, there was a lot of stuff, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, that, that we learned in, in doing some research. Um, the Triple Crown, of course, doing it five times. Uh, I mean, we don't see anybody do that at all now. We'll never see anybody do that. Oh, yeah. We will never see in a single same, player a win a Triple Crown ever again. Because yeah. it just won't happen. That would have been probably my number two. To um, and, and to be honest, uh, I, I know this is a note that you guys found that I didn't. The box set um, of winning the career Grand Slam in all three events yeah, uh, across all four slams. Again, uh, these are just records that we'll never see. Um, they'll never be. They'll be never be uh, matched. They'll never be broken. There's just no. There's no way that we will ever see anything around that. Um, around that kind of mark ever again. Yeah, for me, I got to agree. Um, Eric, on one hand, I agree with you. 1970, that's just a single exceptional year. Uh, it's a level of excellence that's really unparalleled. You know, for just if you just had to pick one season, you can't get better than that. But I, I agree. To me, I think the two that really stand out the most, 1970 might have been the one year that was just, pure domination from start to finish but to me the triple crown and the box set are really the master strokes of her career right there because the triple crown you got to think i understand that the game today is more physical right it, it's just a different kind of game mm-hmm. um rallies are longer takes more out of you um things are a little different i get that um but you know what? The rackets were heavier back then too. They had wooden rackets, right? They weren't the the light uh, things they've got, you know, now like graphene and and uh, you know whatever you know that they use uh, for all the rackets, the titanium and all that stuff. But you still had to play. I think you had to play even more back then, maybe than you than you even do today. You know, because um, rallies were longer. Rallies were, were just, you know, there's a lot of super, serve and volley. But, you know, to to go into a Grand Slam and to enter the singles, doubles, and mixed doubles and not only win one of them, but to win all three of them, that is amazing. 
And how many times did she win two out of three? I didn't even look that stat up, but I'm guessing she won two out of three quite a bit. You oh, know? yeah. I would so, agree. I would agree. So even if she's not winning all three in the same slam, which doing it five times is just ridiculous, doing it – doing two out of three <laughs> in a slam is still ridiculous. It, it's amazing. It's – you know, the level of domination throughout her career is it's, – it's unbelievable. You know, she beat Billie Jean King – 32 or 22 out of 32 times. Yeah. So, which is impressive. And we talk about how great Billie Jean King is, and there's no doubt that she was. But even Margaret Court, you know, she just, she had everything. You know, she had all the, the tools to, to be even the best in, in her era. Um, and I think, I think she, and I think genetics, genetics plays a part. You look at Nadal, I just think it, it, she's she, she so much better shaped than everybody else. I mean, she, her her dedication to fitness as a female uh-huh. is what inspired Navratilova, and she said that before Navratilova to get, to get in better shape. Oh yeah, and that's Navratilova you know, became a fitness nut, and that's what helped Navratilova her longevity. Was and the fact that she could dominate people because she just wear them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and exactly. So that was another aspect, Mike, that I think it, it plays a good part too because, you know, like people said about Nadal just being like a freak, you know, of nature on the tennis court. I just think he's one of the, the, the few athletes to have have a build and bulky size actually play tennis. I think uh, guys of that stature start doing other things and Nadal's like, nope, nope, I'm going to just pound the ball into the ground. Uh, <laughs> and leave it there, type of deal. So that that was well, that, uh, it's a great a transition into set three. Yeah, actually. Um, so uh, and then I want to say about the box, the box set. So okay, you, go ahead. you brought it up. So it was Margaret Court, um, Doreen Hart, which is like 1938, and then Navratilova with the three players to have the the career box set, which was uh, I'll state again was winning all four titles in singles doubles and mixed doubles uh and again this has never been done by a male player so that's just it never will be yeah (laughs) so before you continue on then so just a quick thought for any of you so we talked about the fact that we'll never see this happen but hypothetically who is one person that could theoretically attempt to do it serena yeah, in my mind, yeah. Serena's the only one that could Just, attempt. But at this point in time in her career, I don't think she could now. Well, oh yeah, she could. She could, but what I'm saying is, in, in all do, likelihood, we've seen to. her. But what I'm saying is, we've seen her in the last, we'll say, four or five years, where many times she has been in position with her and Venus, and they've had to pull out for one reason or another in the in the doubles. Due to even but, Serena herself no, having I, I issues miss, with no, that. No, I misstated. It's not doing a career grand slam. It's not doing a calendar slam. It's the career. It's just it's but a, a box set is when you have all a career. Grand slam. Yeah, a so career she's, slam. She's got everything mixed doubles. It wouldn't take Serena could probably do it this year if she went into every grand slam and just did some with mixed doubles with some guy. She would probably she could. Have, but what I'm saying is is we although Serena is the try. only one that could. We we've seen her play a lot of doubles in the last you know four or five seasons, but there's been problems where her or Venus have both had to pull out multiple times. What I'm saying is, uh, I sure, just I just feel like at this point, in, well, I feel like at this point in her career that it would be difficult. I think for even her at her age now to try to you know go through that much tennis in an event now. Well, no, I think it could she not- do it? Sure, but I I just I don't know if she would 
push that hard to do it. You well, know yeah, what I mean? I think it'd be something if she just wanted, like, near the end of her career, it would be a going after a record that I don't have. She's only She only has the Australian and the French that she has to do for mixed doubles, and she'd have it. Yeah. Because she's already got Grand Slam doubles uh-huh. um, a lot. Multiple times. And she's a Wimbledon 1998, Wimbledon U.S. Open mixed doubles. So she's only the Australian and French and mixed doubles from having a box set. Right. So I think when she's done maybe focusing on singles – I, think I just don't wa- see her doing this, but I, this would be a wonderful stat for somebody to throw hey, out at her and say, Serena, hey, you, you she, can join a very elite club here. Exactly. This is the only thing you haven't done yet. <laughs> exactly. If she wants to crush the whole Margaret Court thing and she ties her at 24 or beats her at 25 and people go, oh, well, you don't have 11 Australians. You don't have the box set. I'd have no doubt in my mind. She's like, all right, Australian and French. All right, sure, I'll doubles. do it. Let's do it. And she would only do the mixed doubles and she'd clean everybody's clocks because there's no way <laughs> – there's no way whoever else is playing on the mixed double side for women isn't going to be Venus. Sharapova is not going to play. She's not going to have the level of company. Because remember, women only serve to women. They don't serve to men. Yeah, they do. They do serve to men? Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It's Serena. So <laughs> it, when she hits to the guy, it's going to get an okay reply. When she hits to the girl, someone who doesn't ever face a server like that – I think I think she would. Well, anyway, I mean, we know get... we know we have the answer. We put her with Mike we're... Bryan, and we've got it covered. Exactly. It's done and over with. Exactly. Okay, so so, yeah. so we're, we're going to continue this discussion yes, after yes, we're yes. done recording here. But um, so we're going to go to set three. So really, what makes her so great? And we already talked about it a little bit her length and her athleticism. It was pretty enviable. Um, she coupled with a fitness a level of fitness that was unheard of at the time, um, which it really was. Uh, she was called the Aussie Amazon. Uh, for incredible work ethic when it came to fitness because she would do weight training. She did circuit training and she'd run along hillsides. And that's what really kept her mostly injury free during her career uh, is just anytime she wasn't playing, she was dedicating it to getting herself in better shape. Um, she was a good mover, very smooth for someone her height. Um, she was considered unusually mobile uh, for her size, uh, for her size, and her her style was she played an all attack serve and volley style, which when you added that to her big serve was dominant, uh, dominated conservative defensive players, and that unfortunately was the style. You know, it yeah. was it was like it's like somebody like today serve and volley. When do you see serve and volley? Even if you see it, you see it at Wimbledon. But even then, you don't really see it. You see Misha Zverev. You see Misha. You see Misha Zverev, <laughs> and then you see Roger do his saber attack once in a while, where he'll you know come in and he comes in on the serve even, and then does his serve and volley type of deal. But you don't see that. That's kind of what that was back in the day. It wasn't something people did. It wasn't a normal thing. And then she just was great at it. And just pounded the, the conservative defensive players. Um, she excelled at all phases of the game. And like we said, again, she was an extremely aggressive player. Uh, but one thing was big was she was very mentally strong. You know, if she got down in the first few grand slams that she won, after the first two, uh, she was facing a fellow Australian. And she twice in a row came from a set down in the final and she didn't come from just set down in one. She came from a set down in one six one six zero. So it was a she did not let her uh, let you know her mental uh, mental toughness wane, and it didn't turn into a weakness. You know, most people 
you know, if they eke it out, you come from a set down. You normally don't six one six zero or six zero six zero somebody after losing the first set. Not, not so not that not. tells you that's pretty insane uh, mental strength that you have, and it resembles a lot of like Rafa at all. Uh, you know, it was been stated how many times throughout us following Rafa about his mental strength. You know, coming from a set down, coming from breaks down. You know, and I guess I got to give the nod to Djokovic coming from match point down to Federer in consecutive years <laughs> to come back and beat him, <laughs> you know, and we're talking against Roger, you know, it's not just random person who wilts. You came back from match point down to Roger Federer at the U S open twice in consecutive years and beat him. So, um, you know, there's a f- only a few people that's only, you know, talked about for a handful of guys. I say Agassi, I'd throw in there as well too. Um, in his later years. So we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna go into um, kind of a, a talk about her Grand Slam record maybe being inflated. This is set this, four, correct, Eric? Yeah, we're moving on to set four here, gent- ladies and gentlemen. And this is about you know her Grand Slam record and is it inflated? Um, <clears throat> I threw a few details in here. I dug up because I remembered some part of it uh, was wrong. Thankfully, I didn't just say it out loud because uh, part I was right, part I was wrong. Um, so while Grand Slams were the biggest titles uh, then and now, they did not have the overwhelming importance that we place on them today. Pre uh, uh, place on them today, pre-open era. Uh, before the open era, they were only rounds of five. Um, and starting in 1962, and this is starting with the Australian Open. I'm stating here specifically, um, but in 1962, um, they started receiving a first round buy at the Australian Open. So she only had to play four rounds. Um, Interesting. And then, no, no, there's no doubt that she didn't win 11 um, during her career, but especially for the first six, seven years, they were against lesser competitions. People didn't, you know, most players couldn't afford the trip to Australia, so the level of competition was less. And they played, they played at Christmas and New Year's. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, not like today, the second week of January, which makes a lot of sense. That's what you couldn't get a lot of people to do, too, you know, especially if a lot of the players, you know, in the United Kingdom and America, you know, and Christmas and New Year's being a big holiday and stuff, you just couldn't get people to do it. So it kind of looked on upon as, you know, maybe the first six, seven years until 68 uh, when the open air began, that's where she's starting to receive a lot of discredit. And it's not her fault. I mean, should she be penalized for simply playing who she had to? You know, on one hand, it's not her fault. And yet objectively, we have to gauge just how easy it was for her to win. Because most of the time, it, it was all her countrymen. And, and I'm going off topic here. But when you have the pecking order, like Nadal in Spain, all right. Who beats Nadal at Spanish? When does nobody. it happen? Nobody. So when Margaret Court <laughs> – and there's nobody that's going to beat her from Australia and she's got a pecking order because once you start building that you know, mental block against everybody, like what happens against Nadal, you go in and you're only playing your own countrymen again. It's basically like said and done. If they go in thinking they're going to lose – like what happens against Spanish players when they're playing the doll for the most part, you go in and you already got a, you're already setting a break up on them basically. So yeah, you only had a select few that even remotely make the doll even break a sweat. Exactly, as now, far as that goes. So now there was you know there would be some good players here and there that would travel to the Australian Open from time to time, but it resembled more or less like a big local tournament with a few stragglers from around the world. Um, and I threw in a quick comparison here myself is I wanted people to visualize. And I I just picked. Um, two seasons. I picked 1966, and I picked what Serena Williams had to go through this year. So Serena won 2017 Australian Open, seven rounds to win, no first round buys. Okay, there's 32 seeded players. 
128 total participants, but there's 36 countries represented. And I'm going to just go real quick. We had 18 from the US, 11 from Russia, 8 Australia, 7 from China and Germany, 6 from the Czech Republic, France, Romania, 5 from Italy. You had 4 each from Ukraine, Spain, Slovakia, and Switzerland, and 3 each from Japan, United Kingdom, Croatia, Belgium, and Japan. And you had 18 additional countries that had at least one person. Doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, but look at today's day. Who's the clear-cut number one favorite from Swiss? You've got Roger. You don't got five people from Switzerland winning all the, all the titles. It's kind of like you have one player who kind of is like the king of that. You know, Japan, you've got Nishikori. I think Nishikori okay. would be a best comparison. Exactly. Like, if but you, I mean, if you really Japan, you Nishikori. Us, Djokovic is by clear – the well, best. way way and above any Murray, other Murray for uh, well Britain yeah yeah you know, the so, Kingdom, so, yep, so I mean. the reason I brought this up in all the different countries is that's the best chance if you have to have it's like the Olympics you've got the best player who's going to get into that tournament for the most part all right so she wins goes through all of that and then we have 1966 nothing against Margaret Court but it's a five rounds and she gets a first round bye there's twelve seated players and there's a total of forty eight participants. And that was even rough to gauge. So we're talking 32 seated players to 12, 128 participants to 48, so yeah. a third of the field basically. And there was five total countries there. 43 <laughs> of the 48 were from Australia. You had two from the United States, one from West Germany, one from Chile, one from Argentina. So in 66, wow. I will say this. She did actually – was supposed to play someone in the final. So um, I got a note here about it. So the Australian Championship is what it was called. Took a big step backwards in 1966. The tournament had a very confusing seating system then and first-round buy rolls, which made even counting the tournament players difficult. Of the 12 seeded players, 10 were from Australia and two were from the United States, uh, from the U.S. Uh, Richney, Nancy Richney, and Grabner. Margaret Court won the tournament by default because Rich uh, Richie from the United States withdrew from the final. So, you know, we're talking – I picked that one because – not nothing against her, but it was the easiest Grand Slam that she had to win because she only had to play three rounds. She didn't even play the final because the player pulled out. You know, so nothing against her. But when people talk about Margaret Court, and this is for the listeners, this is what we mean when people say, do you count it? Do you not count it? You know, what is the the conversation? And this is kind of the the unfairness to today's game, but we still got to count it. In my opinion, you got to count the wins. Maybe you slant them a little bit. Maybe you put a little bit of asterisk there, but it's still 24. You can't say she only won what she won in the, in the open era because it's not her fault. If the open era would have been in 61, 60, then everything would have been 24 regulars maybe. You know, you can't say she wouldn't have still beaten everybody anyway. Um, in that, it in just that was set. what it was. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. So I mean, did you know that, Mike? That it was only first. It was only five rounds pre. No, open I did era? not. I did not, Eric. No. I didn't either. So absolutely great, great, now, see, great research I, there. What I thought I was right about that I was wrong, and I'm not afraid to tell the listeners this, is that I had read that the winner from the previous year had an automatic bid to the final. And I uh, obviously it was wrong, yeah. but I, I, I swear that's what I, I read. I read something about that but somewhere, see, but that I don't know in what context. That might have been in like the 20s and 30s. Who knows? I mean, it could have been in the 10s, I 20s, do 30s, believe that was like the case. That. It, it was, used to um, be. I, I don't know when it stopped, Eric. Um, I, but so no, you are correct, Eric. That did happen. It was just late it was 30s before. or 40s, I think. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, it, it was, there was I had, a time. No, I've read that. Yeah, there was a time where if you won the next year, like like Suzanne Longlin, for instance, like back in her day, so that would have been like the mid twenties, 
when she dominated. Like, I think she lost like one match in her, her career. I think uh, I was in, in her era. It was definitely like that. Like she would win. In, like the next year, she just basically sat around until whoever made it through to the final, and then she would play them and win, and that was it. You know, so. Yeah, uh, stat-wise, I got you said that. I got to bring it up because I, I, that's insane. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah, she's uh, three hundred and forty-seven and seven. She had a ninety-three forty-one and seven. Sorry. Yeah, three forty-one and yeah. seven, and she had a ninety-seven point nine nine percent winning percentage. Yeah, <laughs> she lost. She lost Impressive. seven times in an entire career, and that's. It's not like it was. It was twenty-seven and seven, or one hundred and forty. I mean, three hundred forty-one is a lot. And she won everything that there was basically to do back in that day. And we have um, to remember, she died at thirty-nine. So people, you know, at that time could have played. You know, if they played like today, her career would have been cut short. If we really want to talk about it, you well, know, yeah. as of today, that's yeah, true. She, so she, she only played for five or six years because she went from like nineteen nineteen to twenty five, twenty six. So it was it was a, a pretty brief. Not that we're going to keep going into this, but we're going to put a, a profile on her. As yeah, well. yeah, fans, watch out. But, we, you may see a profile on Susan Longland in the future. Um, okay, from 14 to 26 is when she is our actual playing uh, time. Yeah. So it was a decent amount. It was 12 years. But it was basically from – I don't think a lot of it counted because she only did the WHCC. But from 19 to 26 when she actually – when they had tournaments to play, um, yeah, 341 and 7 lifetime is, is a bit of a ridiculous statistic. Anyway, back to – our um, regular broadcast here. Uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about set four a little bit right before we move on to our final thoughts here. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I just want to do – I think we should each do our own take quickly on, on this subject and discuss it because it is a – it's a talking point. And I remember as I was kind of, you know, running through everything, to, you know, the last couple of days we were putting notes together, I got to set four and I was like, you know, the first the first thing we did when we did Rod Laver, you know, we brought up, you know, something for him in this set. And I, and I like doing that. I like leaving this set open to kind of bring up a question or a topic specifically that we want to talk about. And I thought, you know, this is something that is mentioned when people talk about the greatest tennis players of all time. They bring up Margaret Court and they talk about, yeah, she won 24 slams. But, you know, you have to take into account the level of competition back then travel you know people didn't travel as much at the time like you said eric at christmas time you know you're playing this tournament it's not going to bring a lot of people from countries like the united states and england uh so my take on margaret court and this whole thing is kind of similar to what you said where you can't take it away from her you know but at the same time we also have to look at it objectively and you know when you compare it to today even taking aside the style of play, maybe some other things that exist, even the even the five rounds to, to seven rounds, right? Even if you throw that out, for instance, you're still talking about you know getting a first round by and the competition itself just maybe not being on par. And while she shouldn't apologize for that, we have to look at it and say, yes. We're not. To, we can't take that away from you. You won the title. You lifted the trophy. That's fantastic. Obviously, you weren't getting a free ride to the final. Is obviously they used to do way, way back in the day, way back in like the twenties and stuff. Um, but at the same time, 
it was a much easier route to the competition. Would you say our company was in Australians were in the, uh, the draw in 66? Um, 20, uh, 43 of the 48. Including court. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, you're talking about, you know, most you know, 90% of all the people there were from Australia. And if, like you said, if you're the clear cut, the best Australian player, without a doubt, Unless something freakish happens, you're yeah. going to win. What's the likelihood you're probably going to lose, you know, this – very unlikely, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, even if we don't take a 66 and we go back further, maybe she had more competition or she played more rounds and, and all that stuff. But it's still – like I said, it probably is very similar if you go back to 61 and 62 and 63. The makeup of the draw was probably very similar, mostly Australian players – Occasionally, maybe one of the better players from a few countries uh, around the world, but nobody on her level. Nobody that could, you know, it's not like, I think Billie Jean King was there like one year or something. Uh, but beyond that, I, you know, until the open air hit, I don't, I don't think there were that many great players down there for the most part. No, no, I don't not on so. her level. I don't think so either. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that as well? Well, I, <sighs> Here's the thing that I, I have to look at when we when we talk about you know looking at this comparison. Uh, I think there's a lot of other factors involved here that if if we literally step back and we look at this, um, you know we we've again easiest comparison as far as what we've talked about recently is we talked about Rod Laver and how a lot of his slams didn't count uh, because he did turn pro. Now it's an opposite side of the thing from her. But I, I, again, I still think we have to look at it. We, we can't take it away from her, again, like we've said, just because of the fact that she is playing who she played. That's all there was to play. But um, I also look at it and say, you know, in those early years, um, we got to look in a way in terms of things. We talked about the early part of Laver's career, you know, in past talkings and the fact that uh, you know, he played a lot of people uh, in a lot of instances where there wasn't a lot of competition too in the very early part of his career. And I'm talking very early part, like into the you know late, late 50s and things like that. And that was obviously pre when he started winning a lot. Um, but I think we have to look – and again, this, this comes into today even as a topic of discussion is uh, equality at that point in time. I mean we got to remember we're talking in the late 50s into the 60s. Um, how easy was it for women to even travel to these countries at that point in time? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not necessarily saying that she she was winning all these titles just because there wasn't other people around. Yes, this is the, the fact, but was it available for these other great players of that time period to easily be able to get to these locations and play her? I mean, we talked, you know, in our discussions with Laver about, you know, we, we saw a lot of the great American men of the time and, and others were able to travel to these different places and play against Laver in these time periods. But um, I, I think the same thing can't be said for court. I don't think her level of competition, the best in the world with her at that time, might necessarily have been able to travel and play against her in some of these bigger events. And I mean... Again, this is something that I, I can't say concrete that I've researched and know, but this could be something that we look at as far as equality. Were they able to get to these locations around the world and be there to compete against the best? Uh, you know, we, we saw that Laver turned pro, which stunted his Grand Slam 
uh, titles because they weren't in effect in the pros. But he did it because he wanted to play the best competition. That was his only option. I don't know if Court had that ability in saying, was she able to say, I wanted to play the best, but she wasn't able to. Not just because she you know, wasn't able to travel to them, but they might not have been able to travel to her. So again, I, I, and, I, and I know it sounds like I'm defending her. I know it does. Um, but I, I just I'm looking at it, you know, from an outside perspective here of saying, you know, is it is it the same thing? Is is it the same thing that we talked about with Laver? Is the same thing with her? You know, were they was there sacrifices because there had to be uh, in terms of things? But again, I don't think we can take it away from her. Can we slant it like you said, Eric? Yes, yeah. I think we can slant it a little bit. Obviously, we could say that, you know, it, when Serena, and again, I say when, because I, I think we all truly believe it, that Serena will match her, if not pass her, at some point in time. Uh, you know, now if Serena passes her, done deal, right? But if Serena only ends up matching her at 24, then everybody's going to say, okay, well, who did the 24 better? Well, obviously, due to the way that things are, it would be Serena. Serena yeah. Just it, it just is what it is. There's there's no way around that argument. It is what it is. But um, I just feel like there could be another way to look at it as far as you know. Again, maybe not being her fault. Well, no, and you I, know what I mean. Yeah, I, I I understand. It's it's really difficult to say who's the best ever because you're talking about different eras. It'd be one thing if if tennis was like chess. Guess what? Chess, chess has never changed. Chess, the chess board has never changed. You don't have plastic chess. The rules are all the same. You know, polyester <laughs> string chess. Yeah, the, the difference is is because technology, tennis is, is a game that got advanced by technology and change. So you're talking about you, 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 can, you can kind of compare, but then you can never compare because there's so many different factors. It's, it's unfortunately uh, a sport that – is all about change and that's one of the great things about it you know it has remained the same for the most part but from uh you know you're affected by the the shoes you wear and then you're training yourself and the food you eat but then also the tennis strings and the way the rackets are made and the tennis grips and then the balls themselves have changed we've seen uh them use lighter balls and different balls for different tournaments especially in like madrid so it's really hard there's a lot of what compare. ifs. Yeah. And there's a lot of change. There's a lot of differences. If tennis today was the same and they didn't change it, say they still did wooden rackets and they still did strings. And the only thing that changed relatively was maybe your fitness and food. And that's things that are not sport related. It's personally. And that was really it. Then you could make more or less full on like apples to apples comparisons. But the problem is, is that is not only was competition and other things different back in the days, everything about the game has gotten different. Too many variables. Yeah, exactly. You know, from, um, you know, courts being played on different, different surfaces. You know, you have clay, you've got hard court, you've got grass where, you know, multiple grand slams were played on grass back in the day Mm -hmm. where, you know, if you had two grand slams on grass, in a calendar year now, Federer would by far have in the mid twenties, maybe early thirties <laughs> at this point. You know, so there's just that's where when I look at it, I like to say, is she could be greatest of all time, but I don't like that discussion. I like to say she's the greatest of her era. Is is the easiest way to give her, you know, not take away. I wouldn't say she's the greatest of all time, only because of the level of competition she had to play, not her fault. But you still you, – by saying she's still the best ever, now you're insulting Serena who had – maybe she's one slam behind. But she had to play far better competition 
than than court had to do. So it's it's a give and take. But I like to say, in my opinion, uh, that I would call Margaret Court the best of her era and one of the greatest ever. But I cannot say I do not say she's the greatest ever. Only based on the fact, or not only, but based on the fact of of who she won most of her titles with. There were most of them were in Australia because Australia the mixed doubles. They had the doubles um, as well as the singles. She won a lot of her titles in Australia combined for all three um, before it was really opened up. And like they said, the open era where everybody could come. And before then, like I said, they didn't change when it was played that didn't come until after when the open air rolled around and then it came to be later in the year wasn't around christmas and new year's then you were going to open it up to um to bit to players from other countries that really like china like the chinese new year thing they don't they shut down for three weeks um for tennis fans i play world of warcraft anybody who raids like like chinese guilds when it gets to be close it's three weeks everybody takes off so they quit raiding. There's everything stops. Everything stops. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's a serious thing over there where you know factories work, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of that that didn't happen in the United States where we, you know, um, not everybody, but you know, back then uh, most people, you know, did Christmas, celebrated Christmas, celebrated New Year. No one's gonna want to fly to Australia when it's summertime in Australia to play a tournament. And it was very little prize money. That was the other point I forgot to mention. Now there was very little prize money mm-hmm. to make it worth coming down there. Absolutely. You know, and and it's cheaper to fly it now in the world than it was back then. Transatlantic flight. And that's what I was talking about. That's not, that's what I like meant said, about yeah, is them being was, able to travel. Exactly. It was just it was not, not as easy to do. Then. It was not cheap. So. Um, I would say her record is a little bit inflated. Um, nothing against it. She still has got 24. But when you win, you know, the first seven years of from 61, 60, 61 up to 68, every tournament you played in Australia and any other place you played was best of five. And you played your own countrymen for the most part. That's where I got to take a little bit of credit away. And that's where I guess even if Serena doesn't win another slam, I would have to call Serena the greatest of all time. Okay, uh, Eric. Eric, was that your? Do we, do we bleed into set five? Yeah, we, we kind we, of both we did. did. Yeah, we yeah, really, really I mean, we kind of both did. Bled? Yeah. So yeah. I'm just going to do a, two more thoughts on that because I did bleed into <laughs> well, set five. And then, being, Mike, yeah, you can. Eric, what, you can. Well, okay, first, like, what's set five? What are we doing here? Yeah, exactly. Like, so set five is basically it's the final word on Mark Court. So you know, our final thoughts on her as a player, her career, you know, what she meant to tennis, and that was my part. I want to touch on. I kind of said about her career being fantastic and her as a player, but what she means to tennis. She was another one of those like like Laver. For her, I Margaret Court was one of the first women that I I can I can't find it, but one of the first women to come back to tennis after getting married and having a kid and being successful at it. And she did multiple kids. Remember? Yeah, she, she has, has more two than kids. one kid. Yeah, two she has two kids. Well, she actually has four total. Oh, okay. Well, but, I know, but what I meant was playing, after though. two different times yeah, yeah. that she came back from a child. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. I just added for um, But the comeback, her fitness inspired you know, a lot of females because back in the day – and there's nothing political here or not political but – well, whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, Women were looked at and were expected to look and dress and be a certain way. I'm not going to lie. This is 50s and 60s. I remember hearing it from my mother. Okay. 
So we're talking about a, a, a woman who is like, no, I love tennis. I want to play tennis and I need to be in the best shape that I can be in so I can beat absolutely everybody. And that in turn inspired a set of women like Navratilova, you know, not say more or less Steffi Graf, but they saw this template. They saw, okay, she was a fitness nut and yeah, she had raw talent and she was great, but those two things combined and you saw what she did. It wasn't until she got later in her career that she started to kind of lose on a regular basis, which happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. But if she went out like Bjorn Borg at the top, her win percentage would be even higher. You know, if she retired in say 73, 74, because I don't remember when she won her last – Grand Slam total. Yeah. Um, but she, she played four or five years there yeah, she, after she, the peak I know, of her I know she paid a few, a few more years after her peak before she finally retired. And I don't think she won a slam in the last couple of years. You, know, you quit there and it just makes your stats look even better. So it's someone who I thought was very big and instrumental for women because of what she did, because of the coming back and because of the fitness really being the big thing was just the fitness. That was not something that was, you know, natural and kind of normal in that day and age. Uh, people look, I'm going to say, I'm going to say it, men, men, you know, you have a lot of men who look down upon that. We still have it today. You know, I, you know, still see people, you know, a woman who's in, you know, really good physical shape. I love watching wrestling, and I've heard, you know, reading on forums, tennis fans can completely agree with you. Eric. You know, you know, saying bad things, nasty things about a woman who has a little bit of muscle on her. Ric Flair's daughter, you know, for one, mm-hmm. she's not insane, but she, I mean, she's got sculpted arms, she's got abs, and everything, and people are like, it's literally, a negative aspect. Yeah, yeah, literally looking at it down, like, oh, a woman shouldn't look like that. A woman should look softer, you know, things like that. And it's just like, you know what? That is terrible outlook on it. I don't like it, and I'm happy that Margaret Court broke the mold and just went all out with her fitness because that, that's what you know helped start the change for today. Mike, I, I have one more point I want to throw into uh, with my final thought uh, that we blended in here, and then uh, we'll let you close it out, of course. Um, so I had talked about how I felt we shouldn't necessarily penalize her. Now, we could slide it a little bit on the difficulty level. Uh, the one comparison that I looked up, um, and, and it was the best comparison as far as you know, uh, someone that a lot of people have heard of in the tennis community. I mean, a lot of people have heard of Margaret Court, but we look at somebody that's uh, we put in that icon status is Jimmy Connors. So on the men's side, Jimmy Connors won a hundred and nine career titles, and you know we see that Roger and you know several other players are are slowly catching him um, at this point, right? But we say 109 titles is, is a very lofty number. But, you know, the same way that we say about Margaret Cord and her playing some lesser competition, we look at Jimmy Connors and can say that out of those 109 titles, how many of them did he play against elite level competition? Now, granted, uh, you know, we know that the level of competition his day was high, but how many of those little titles did he win that really bumped that level up that high was against lesser competition? Maybe not like the lowest level, but what I'm saying is lesser than what we expect him at his Grand Slam events, we'll say. Well, yeah. Yeah, I I can agree on that. Right. But what I was talking about in that is, um, you know, we talked here about how Margaret Court was the most elite physical, you know, level of fitness at that time. time. So my other point is – had she had this better competition in that day, who's to say she still wouldn't have won? Oh, exactly. That's true. Um, so, so That's again, true. I don't, I, you know, because we talk about Billie Jean King as one of the greatest players ever. She dominated Billie Jean King. 
which we can't say many people ever did, right? We can't say that many dominated Billie Jean King, yeah, not but really. she did. Yeah. She dominated her. So you talk. So you talk about one of the greatest players ever in Billie Jean King, and then you talk about someone like Margaret Court who dominated her. Um, you know, so in that aspect, you have to say, okay, so when she did play the elite level competition, she was still dominating then. Now, obviously, she was in the latter part of her career, maybe at that point. Um, you know, like Eric said, you know, in in the later part of the seventies, obviously she was well past her prime then. But the fact is, you know, we have to look at it and say, is elite as she was in her level of fitness and ability at that point in time, even if she was playing against the best players of the day, who's to say she still wasn't going to win anyway? Oh no, I agree. Mike, I turn it over to you. Okay. All right. All right. So my final thoughts on. Margaret Court are uh, the few things I had jotted down here. Um, to me, Court is in many ways like Serena was, or Serena is today. You know, we look at Serena. Serena's you know very uh, strong uh, physically and athletically. She just has no equal on the tennis court. You know, when we see see Serena out there against, I mean, toss out really any player on tour. She's just a different physique. And for someone that's as big and as strong as she is, it's intimidating. And even though Margaret doesn't have the same kind of physique as Serena does, for her day, she was still exceptionally, exceptionally strong and tall and imposing. And for most players across the net, that had to be a scary prospect. You know, her her serve was scary, scary good. She worked on her serve uh, for hours and hours to make sure that that thing was a massive weapon. And yeah, the serve can't compare to what we have today, but you know that's fine. Uh, but for the t- for the time period for when she played, her serve was was huge. It was a real weapon. Um, so that shows you the kind of just the level of craft and dedication that she had. It wasn't just the, the physical aspect. She was an athletic marvel. Okay. Uh, I think really in any era, she would be an, an athletic marvel, but for her time, she was out of this world. She was Serena like, okay. In terms of how far ahead she was of everybody else, both just on a, on a fitness level. Sure. But I think on just an athletic genetic level, she was just in a different place. Um, I think she had an overpowering kind of like the all out attack style of play coupled with all of her fitness and athleticism. She covered the net like a tarp. She had exquisite technique, uh, obviously playing with, you know, you have Rod Laver who was dominating the men's game at the time. I know they were close. Um, you're talking about somebody who could give you tips and pointers, uh, just being around them, you know, that was, that was helpful. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, on top of all that, her passion, she had this mental strength, this inner drive. You combine everything, all of it together from the athleticism to, to the, um, just the fitness, the mental strength, the drive to be the best. It's like this perfect recipe for success and for pure domination. And let's face it, no matter how you look at things, no matter whether you put a slight asterisk on those early 60s to mid-60s wins at the Australian Open, 
she dominated. She dominated. And when the open era hit, guess what? She dominated too. It didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter when there, whether there was an open era or whether there was a pre-open era. Because when the open era hit, she dominated 1969. She won three slams. 1970, she won the calendar slam. She won 21 titles. So it, did it really matter? You know, no, it didn't because she was still the best in the world, period. So, you know, beating Billie Jean King 22 out of 32 times, that's just, that, that's dominance. And she was dominant and personified. And so that's it. No, I agree. Um, yeah. All right. So that is it for uh, Margaret Court, uh, which is our second uh, ATP player profile on the series. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we know who we're going to do next. Correct, Mike? I don't know yet. Next month, uh, we're not entirely sure at the moment who we're doing. Um, but it, it may have some ties to the French Open, maybe? No. But it may not. No. I think we're going to try, uh, just to kind of give you guys an idea, I think around the slams, we're going to try and – you know, do players that are, are tied to the slams, uh, at least for the first year or two that we do this, because there's so many players. Uh, and in between the slams, we're just going to try and have a good selection of players um, and kind of just go from there. I think who's that's the general template. Tennis? <laughs> well, yeah, and have, you know, we're going to pick some up and comers, maybe some popular people, and then, you know, some people you may have forgotten about, you know, because I'm, I'm interested in doing some of the other women, like uh, Kingis, Navratilova. Uh-huh. Billie Jean King herself, mm-hmm. things like that, because it's just you know the men's side. It was less intriguing, in my opinion. <laughs> now, when I look back and you know what I know already, I, I'm like, all right, yeah, you know, besides Nadal and Federer going back and forth, it wasn't as much, you know, things. It wasn't as many. Well, it's more difficult rivalries. from this era right now because of the fact that we have such a dominance by a select few. Yeah. Um, but there are, as you said, Mike, many, many players over the history of the game. We have to remember tennis was, you know, well over a hundred years old at this point. So yep. yeah. there's, a lot uh, there's of lots of people. There's a yeah. lot. There's, there's a, a lot, lot of people to cover. to cover. And by all means, fans, um, you know, Mike, you can give them the details. But uh, anybody that you guys want to have us uh, do player profiles on, yeah, let, uh, let by us all know. means. Anybody, do not be afraid to write in about anybody. We will literally look into it, and if it is something logical, um, or there's enough information, and to there's give enough you. <laughs> information, we will definitely do it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, do, want- don't don't give me that one time Grand Slam winner from 1914. I'm not gonna be able to find out <laughs> enough to give you guys an entire podcast. On, yeah, so. we, we do have to be able to find information. Uh, all right, so if you do want to send in any suggestions or if you just want to send in some feedback for the podcast, you can do so by writing in to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, just write in the subject line what you were writing in about, and we will respond in the next podcast. Um, let's see, anything else before we go? I think that's about it. So wow. this just continues our series. Uh, like I said, we'll be back next month. We'll have more uh, players to profile. We're going to be doing – the one male, one female thing. I think it works out pretty well. I think everyone agrees that's a that's a good uh, yeah. format to do it for each yep. month. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, that's it for us. So until we see you guys next month, have a good one. And this is uh, goodbye from Tennis Addict Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Addict Podcast by Freaking Geeks Media. Be sure to visit freakinggeeks.com as well as our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash freakinggeeks for more great content. 
Also, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really helps. If you would like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lanik or at Freak Geeks. Intro music for this episode is Danger Storm by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Outro music is Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can also find the attribution in the episode description as well.